When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Warby Parker, an easy way to buy prescription glasses online. Their glasses start at just $95, including lenses, and you can try up to five frames for free with their home try-on program. Plus, you'll get free three-day shipping on the glasses you choose when you visit warbyparker.com and use the promo code CULTURAL. And by Casper, the risk-free online retailer of premium mattresses. Try sleeping on an American-made Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com cultural. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Watching the Watchers Do the Watching edition. It's Wednesday, October 29th, 2014. On today's show, Citizen Four is the new documentary about Edward Snowden, and then we discuss Jane the Virgin, which is a surprise charmer from what geezers like me still think of as the WB, but it's really the CW. And finally, it takes an army of workers laboring to keep your social media feed from being a dungeon of unremitting horrors. So says the wonderful Adrian Chen, who's in to discuss his Wired article. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steve. Is everyone sort of like me a little relieved not to be in front of hundreds of adoring fans? (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to be here in our little padded room. Dana and I are just safe in an ensconced little hot chamber of foam padding. Yeah. I mean, it's a relief for me not to be, you know, walking off the stage into the arms of frenzied maynads, um, (laughs) (laughs) which has never happened and never will. But uh, anyway, moving on. In 2013, an anonymous someone contacted the documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras. He called himself Citizen Four and demanded Poitras use highly elaborate encryption technology to communicate with them. After having won her trust and vice versa, he then asked her to come meet him in Hong Kong, where he had absconded with evidence that the United States government was, in essence, eavesdropping on American citizens on a massive and massively undisclosed scale. Citizen Four, of course, turned out to be Edward Snowden, a Booz Allen employee doing work for the NSA. The footage Ms. Poitras filmed in that Hong Kong hotel room forms the basis of the astonishing documentary she's produced. I say astonishing, if nothing else, because she documented the last moments before a man, in some ways like Daniel Ellsberg, in some ways maybe even like John Brown. Uh, she filmed him in the last moments before he gives his name over and his life identity over to a public frenzy and possibly even eventually history. Anyway, let's listen to a clip from the movie. Laura. At this stage, I can offer nothing more than my word. 
a senior government employee in the intelligence community. I hope you understand that contacting you is extremely high risk. For now, know that every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, site you visit, and subject line you type is in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, but whose safeguards are not. In the end, if you publish the source material, I will likely be immediately implicated. I ask only that you ensure this information makes it home to the American public. Thank you, and be careful. Citizen 4. Sir, I don't know anything about you. Okay. Um, I work for... Uh... Sir, I don't know your name. Oh, sorry. I, uh, my name is Edward Snowden. Uh, I go by Ed. Um, Edward Joseph Snowden's the full name. All right, well, that was the filmmaker reading uh, emails that she and IMs that she had traded with uh, Edward Snowden. That's the trailer for the film. Uh, I should also say that due to a, a snafu completely out of her control, Julia Turner was not able to see Citizen Four, so we're joined instead by Fred Kaplan, who writes the War Stories column and I think of as a Renaissance polymath for his lovely writing on um, jazz. Fred, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Did you learn anything new from watching this particular film? Well, you know, some of this has been noted. I, I don't think anybody knew up until this point that Snowden's girlfriend had actually joined him uh, in Moscow. I, I, I should also say, I mean, you know, at least the first half of the film is, I mean, she's a really good filmmaker. I mean, this is, this is beyond dispute. And the first half of the film is, is really gripping, which, which is something to pull off because we, we all know where this story is going. And yet, yet it's filled with suspense, and and it is kind of fascinating to see this guy at a moment, as you said, before anybody knew who he was, uh, kind of finding his footing in this strange new realm. Sometimes, just you know, casually sitting around. Uh, it, it's a it's a fascinating uh, look into into what's going on. Mm-hmm. If you're inclined to like him, you'll see. A modest, self-effacing, pleasant young man. And if you're inclined to dislike him, you'll see a narco-libertarian narcissist, or uh, I, I should, that's overstating it, but you'll certainly see strains of narcissism and self-centeredness at a certain point in the movie after the first revel- revelations have become public. He just leaves the television on, it seemingly as wallpaper, uh, in order to witness the coverage of his own leaks. Did this change your feeling about him personally, or or does our personal feelings about Edward Snowden make do they make no difference whatsoever? In the scheme of things, they make no difference whatsoever. I think, but you know, looking at it as a film and and realizing that there is a human drama behind this, sure. And, and you know, uh, look, I I've I've known a fair number of, of whistleblowers in my day, and uh, they they all tend to be very charming and smart and engaging, and to varying degrees, egomaniacal and narcissistic. These qualities aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, there's this one scene where, I mean, I don't know what this is about. He's sitting on his bed, typing out something on his laptop, and maybe it's a password or something, but he puts a blanket over his head. I mean, it covers his entire body and the laptop, so that, what, nobody can see what he's typing? But, I mean, 
we don't see the keyboard. Presumably there's no camera in the wall in the hotel room. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, even Greenwald kind of looks at somebody else in the room like, what's going on here? So, But, you know, then again, someone like this and who does have some idea of, of the NSA's abilities it probably comes by his paranoia well-earned. Well, his paranoia is very infectious in this movie as well. Yeah. In fact, that, that bit from the trailer we heard, which is the opening to the movie, which is Laura Poitras reading his early emails and IMs out loud, has this Trent Reznor music in the background that you heard that's very tense and sort of creepy and thriller-like. And there's very much of a sense throughout this movie that, you know, NSA surveillance is so much huger than we could possibly imagine have imagined. No matter how paranoid Edward Snowden may be, he's probably not paranoid enough, and we should probably all be that paranoid. And Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, who are the two people in this Hong Kong hotel room she's filming and he's interviewing, and for the most part, those are the those are the people whose presence we're in, although we never see Poitras's face itself. They seem to have, have caught the bug of this paranoia, or maybe they had it from the beginning, and that was what I didn't trust about this movie. Although it's quite a thrilling document to watch, it really is cinema verite unfolding in real time. And Steve, I think the reason that they're watching that footage on the TV is probably not only narcissism, but because they are actively unsure of what's going to happen when they step out of the hotel room and what the legal fate of Edward Snowden is about to be. And so all that stuff is very exciting in an almost born identity kind of way. But I don't trust what this movie is showing me at some fundamental level, because I think it lionizes and martyrizes Edward Snowden so so blatantly and, and shows so little of, of any counter-argument like the one Fred just made that I come away from it feeling like it was almost a document of propaganda. Hmm. Dana, I, we'd be remiss if you didn't speak a little bit more about the film as a film. What What are your thoughts about that? I, you know, it's funny. It's hard to talk about this film as a film because it does immediately overlap with all of these real questions that we have, pressing questions about the NSA and who's spying on who and how long have they been doing it. And I think that's because... To me, Citizen Four didn't feel like a documentary as much as just a document. You know, no one is interviewed. There's no, I mean, Glenn Greenwald interviews Snowden because that is the activity that Laura Poitras is filming. But nobody sits down in front of her camera to be interviewed as a talking head, right? What she's really doing is watching unfold the final days of Edward Snowden in this Hong Kong hotel room before he then has to seek refuge in Russia, and and which he doesn't, of course, know is going to happen at the beginning of the movie. So in that sense, that you're seeing something unfolding in real time, and it's very kind of art fully done, I, I would I would say go see the movie. If you want to see what it was like when Edward Snowden leaked his secrets in a Hong Kong hotel room to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, then you should see this movie because that's exactly what it's about. And it portrays those days in a very lively and tense way. But if you want to come away with some larger sense of what the Snowden revelations mean and, you know, what, what you're sort of takeaway is about how you should feel about your own government, I'm not sure this is the place to go to it, because I did really feel like everything was being filtered through this very uh, partisan lens. And I, I don't know, I don't even know that I'm an anti-Snowden liberal, but sort of how I felt at the time about WikiLeaks and about Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, and about this revelation was always sort of these may be very important revelations, but is this the person who we want in charge of our national security? Is this 29-year-old security analyst who puts a blanket over his head when he you know, looks at his own laptop, is this the person who we want deciding who's going to know what and when? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a very good point. You know, Snowden has said very many times that I was, I was witnessing the violation of the Constitution. I, yes, I did sign this contract, which, which said that I cannot release any of this information on penalty of, you know, spending the rest of my life in jail or Russia. But I had an I, I had also taken an oath to protect the Constitution, and I felt I had to step up. Well, as you say, Dana, 
you know, the, the Supreme Court has not spoken. Uh, there are some very interesting things about the Fourth Amendment. And right now, the courts have spoken and have ruled that the activities uncovered by Ed Snowden are legal. Now, maybe someday the Supreme Court will overturn those decisions, but they haven't so far. Fred, of the things that were revealed by Snowden, which was the most shocking to you? You mean in general, not necessarily in the movie? Yeah, not necessarily in the course of the well, film. I, I ask, I, I ask only because, Fred, let me tell you yeah, why I ask. It's because sure. how will history acquit or not acquit someone like Edward Snowden? I mean, it, on balance, it's going to be whether or not the public good was ultimately served by the revelations. And the only way to make that, even begin to make that judgment is to weigh against all of the extraneous things that he uh, leaked that, as you say, may put American assets of various kinds in danger, in unnecessary danger, uh, against, you know, revealing to the American public that they're being eavesdropped on in ways that may be totally extra legal. I would say that I didn't know I don't think anybody who didn't have certain clearances knew that the, NS, that, the, that the extent of NSA surveillance inside the United States was as extensive as it was. Now, you know, the NSA's charter, which I believe is still classified, but we do know that the NSA charter expressly prohibits domestic surveillance. It's to intercept communications, signal intelligence of foreign entities. Now, you know... What's evolved in the last decade or so with the Internet, you know, data is split up into packets. There might be uh, a conversation going on between someone in Pakistan and someone in Saudi Arabia, and at some point, some of this data comes into the United States. And the NSA argues that we need to intercept this stuff here, too. Even so, it's just kind of incredibly vast, the degree to which this is being done. And I think that is a um, legitimate legacy. There have been, since presidential commission has been formed, to look into possible reforms of this practice. Is it really necessary? I mean, here's one, one thing, for example. Okay, let's say that they detect that my phone number is calling a phone number in Pakistan. All right, so they, this raises alarm bells. So they can track that, and then they say, well, you know, we also want to know who, who else I'm talking to. And I would say, well, you know, all right, that makes sense, as long as they're not tapping my phone, as long as they're just doing traffic analysis at this point. But then they also want to know who those people are talking to, and then who those people are talking to. And if you do the math you could conclude that this one investigation could prompt the surveying of a million phone numbers. Now, do they actually do this? No. But the, the real concern that I have, and that I know the people who are on Obama's commission have, and that even some veteran counterterrorism special I know, I know have, is the potential that this creates. I mean, imagine... If Richard Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover had this kind of technology at their fingertips, hmm. uh, the, the kind of the, the kind of Watergate and Coentopro operations that they did could have been magnified and multiplied several fold, and so it's the potential 
for abuse. One, one counterterrorism specialist told me, and I wrote a column about this in Slate, I think before anybody knew about Edward Snowden, is that this is creating the foundations of a very oppressive state. And um, to the degree Snowden has revealed the extent of this, you know, that that is a good legacy for him. Okay. This has been a tremendous discussion, and uh, Fred, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, Fred Kaplan, thanks so much. Please come back soon. Okay. I, and I should say, your Renaissance polymath credentials don't begin and end with jazz. You also write about uh, art uh, and uh, technology. And uh, anyway, we're big fans. Thanks yeah, for coming on. Yeah, come back on. soon, Fred. Okay, thanks a lot. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We have a brand new sponsor this week, Steve. I'm thrilled to announce that Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses, is sponsoring the Slate Culture Gab Fest this week. Casper, which I think of internally as Casper, the friendly mattress company, because somehow the name Casper is always associated with the friendly ghost to me. And so I just, I think that's like a friendly brand name. Maybe that's wrong. It seems sort of snuggly, too. I mean, Casper is sort of mattress-like. He's white and soft and fluffy. Yeah, exactly. Who wouldn't want to snuggle up with that charming little ghost fella? Anyway, you probably can't. <laughs> and also an intellectual property lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. (laughs) Casper is a mattress company that is trying to save you the pain of mattress shopping. If you go to a normal mattress store in your vicinity, you will find that mattresses can cost well over $1,500. It's very confusing, which kind of top and bottom and shape and whatever you should get. But Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-sized and $950 for a king-sized mattress, and you can buy them all online. How does that work? Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. So you can take it home, try it, sleep on it, see how comfortable it is. And then if it doesn't work out for you, send it back risk-free. This is great because I know tons of people who've bought mattresses and spent a bunch of money and done all the research and then it just isn't quite right. But you don't run any of that risk with Casper. The mattresses are also made in America and they combine two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, for a better night's sleep and brighter days. So basically these are the perfect mattresses if you are an insomniac patriot with mattress commitment issues, which I think describes many of us. And if you're in the market for a new mattress, you should definitely check out Casper. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash cultural and using the promo code cultural. Again, that's casper.com. All right, moving on. Jane the Virgin is a new show on The CW. It's notable, among other things, for being a clever meta-adaptation of a Venezuelan telenovela. Willa Paskin is the uh, TV critic for Slate magazine. Um, Willa, thanks so much for joining us to talk about the show. Before we tuck in, why don't we listen to a clip? Nausea and fainting spell solved. You're pregnant. (laughs) I'm sorry, but she's just not pregnant. No, I'm not pregnant. Uh, We tested your urine. Trust me, the test is wrong. False negatives are frequent. False positives are rare. Jane... Did you wear my No, we didn't. And it may be rare, but it happened because I'm a virgin. A virgin? Uh, maybe we should talk in private. No, no, we don't need to talk in private. I think we do. Where did you get your degree from? The University of Dumbass? My daughter said that she is a freaking virgin, so do another damn test. Pink means pregnant. Okay, Willa, but by way of setting this up, the central conceit of the show is that Jane is a 23-year-old virgin. She's guarded 
her virginity carefully, uh, in part because of the influence of her uh, wonderful grandmother. And then uh, she gets accidentally uh, inseminated and impregnated by the sperm of the man who actually is her boss. As you say in your wonderful review of the show, in telenovelas, coincidences are like oxygen. Willa, you love the show. I think I love the show, too. It is such a unique charmer. It's uh, something completely unexpected, and it's just a delight through and through. Tell me what your thoughts are. Well, everything you just said, basically. I mean, I think that it is so fun and so sweet and um, so much smarter, maybe, than it has to be in addition to being uh, kind of adorable and charming. I think the thing about a telenovelas historically, or sort of our stereotypes about telenovelas, because it's not as a you know, English-speaking American audiences are necessarily super familiar with the format, is they're supposed to be outlandish and ridiculous and kind of just fantastical and silly almost, you know, like just crazy, crazy things. Soap opera things happen, but, you know, to infinity, just every insane thing. And I think what's really interesting about the show is as much as a lot of this craziness is clearly happening, and I've seen the first three episodes, and already you have that feeling that this is the show where, like, everybody is going to have slept with everybody in... 10 episodes and everyone is going to be related, you know, just that every permutation is possible, that they react to everything sort of in a realistic, emotionally realistic way, you know, so far, which is, I think, will be the hardest thing to sort of maintain as the world gets spins out of control. I think that's a really good point that it's sort of this contrast between the expansive craziness of soap opera plotting and the kind of charming realism, semi-realism of like... I mean, it's on the CW, but it's like an ABC family kind of loving and learning family environment show. And part of the way that works, even though it sounds like it shouldn't, is this kind of meta telenovela within the telenovela, right? The the family. So it includes Jane, her mother, who got knocked up at 16 with Jane and and is part of the... um, warning story that has caused Jane to heed her abuela's advice that she should remain a virgin. Um, The three of them sit down and watch this telenovela, you know, every time it comes on and it's melodramatic and it's both green screened against like disturbingly lovely sunsets (laughs) and, you know, it's, it's over the top. And so in it, they are addicted to and make fun of telenovelas, which both inflates and undercuts the fact that the show itself is a soap opera because you get the sense that these are characters who get that soap operas are crazy, right? So it's like weird to see characters enacting a soap opera while also living a life in which soap operas exist and are crazy. Like on days of our, their but lives. But that they love, you know, that they don't, that they like us. I mean, they're sort of performing what the audience is supposed to perform, which is to know it's absurd and silly and be completely addicted to it. Right. But like imagine a world where on days of our lives they watch, you know, like The Bold and the Beautiful. Totally. Well, this is like the OC did this. I mean, there's shows that have had like, that are soap operas that have had their characters obsessed with very similar soap operas before. <laughs> I, I, I um, missed that part of the OC. That's funny. Um, you know, well, in, in this, I don't know if this happens in the OC, case of the OC, but there's also, without giving away what it is, some crisscross between the actors in the soap opera world and the people in Jane's world. So the soap opera jumps off the screen right. at, at some point late in the first episode, and you start to see those two things intermingle. You know what some of this craziness reminded me of? If I had one reference point that this show reminded me of, it was sort of Almodovar light, you know? <laughs> and of course, he's very influenced by telenovelas, but 
something about the candy-colored set designs and that kind of fun world that it takes place in. And then just this combination of sort of sexual hothouse, but also something kind of sweet and, and wholesome behind it. I mean, the mom, Jane's mom, is this very, I don't know, I mean, I guess in the past she's supposed to have been somewhat promiscuous. Now she is, it seems to make her living doing some sort of like sexy Latina dancing. It's not exactly stripping, but she's like singing at some Miami club in a shimmery dress. Like she wants to be a pop singer, but she maybe is sort of more karaoke or something. (laughs) I'm not even quite clear whether it's her profession or not. But that whole world reminded me of Almodovar, too, was this sort of, you know, aspiring starlet, you know, in the the Miami universe. And also all these female characters, like just all of these women, which is very... Yeah, the mere fact that it takes place in basically like a gynotopia, that's very (laughs) Almodovarian. (laughs) A Latina gynotopia, right? I mean, we should say that the fact that they went a little bit meta with the telenovela might have been or could, could be interpreted as a concession to a more Anglo audience. But hard, that hardly seems like that could be the case. The show is is so wonderfully, unapologetically uh, Hispanic. I mean, you hear a ton of Spanish, uh, subtitled Spanish on the show. Uh, the character of the grandmother is uh, it, it's just the co- closest I've come to crying uh, watching a, a, a show on the CW for at least three or four months. <laughs> <laughs> The, it, it, am I barking up a, a, a good tree here? Yeah. But yeah, the I, Latin quality of the show is, is its charm, and they do not try to abridge it for a quote-unquote wider audience. Yeah, it, it, it has this – so there's there's lately been a sort of res, – not a resurgence, a surge, because it's the first time on television of sort of a lack of anxiety about language issues. So like The Bridge, for example, on FX, which could not spiritually be more different <laughs> from the show in just terms of being so bleak and brutal, also a ton of it took place in Spanish. I think that the fact that they know that people are into shows from England and people are into shows from Scandinavia has sort of calmed – Um, network executives down about like just subtitles and people fleeing. But I think also, you know, June Thomas has written about this. Telemundo has more ratings than the CW. Mm -hmm. I've also not, you know, NBC and ABC and CBS. So having a sort of really genuinely bilingual show, like a a sort of uncompromisingly bilingual show, I think is really appealing to audiences that are still really watching TV, in addition to being a really charming feature of the show for people who don't speak Spanish. There's another way that diversity is kind of effortlessly folded into the show, which is that there's this lesbian character, the the gynecologist who mistakenly inseminates Jane in the first episode is lesbian. And the reason that it happens on that particular day is that she's so upset that she just found her girlfriend cheating on her. And all of that, I think, also just is incorporated into the show without there being any banner bearing or flag waving about it. And it turns out that I think they recast that character from episode one to two without really saying that they recast it. But that woman is is her stepmother, is, is the doctor's stepmother. So just like they just they're like so um the woman that she's sleeping with is also married to her father so it's like just another crazy melodramatic turn where it's like when you can have everybody sleeping with everybody and you can have it's the way that homosexuality actually um i always think this watching romantic comedies it just opens up all these other avenues for people to pair off that you <laughs> never had before it's like just such a it's like a, a story it's bonanza. a plot generator yeah totally slippery slope the supreme court's nightmares have come true <laughs> <laughs> Um, I feel like I, you know, if you follow TV critic Twitter, which is like a definite subunit of Twitter in which you are probably deeply enmeshed, right, Willa? Like, Jane the Virgin seems to have crept into TV critic Twitter as like this surprising delight on the fall landscape, right? And maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody was expecting this to be a star show. But it's sort of, 
I feel like it's always fun to watch critics discover something that they're like, whoa, this CW show. Hey. Is there a little bit of that in the response? I think so. I mean, it is a CW show. And um, the CW has tried to make a lot of shows lately that are really fun and delightful and totally failed. I think that their vision of sort of young adulthood is actually historically has been sort of very sordid. Like, it's like goth- it's the Gossip Girl model. It's like 16-year-olds doing things like 38-year-olds shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and that would be overwhelming to them. Um, you know, promiscuous, drugs, money, just really in heightened kind of... You know, it's not that it's seedy. It's like a, it's a, it's sort of like very for mature audiences only, but actually for, you know, 16-year-olds and 32-year-old women. But this is actually is not like there is all of those elements in it, but it's not at all trying to be sort of older than it is. It actually is um, a very sweet show that obviously has sex in it. But I mean, she is a virgin. You know, it's, it's like it's 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 having these there's something just more. It's just more, sort of more realistic, but sort of also more humane and less kind of like uh, grotesque about about its approach mm-hmm. to those things. Well, right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Oh, sorry, the, uh, uh, I love the. I mean, just the opening sequence that sets up the entire show is a flashback to the grandmother handing a beautiful white flower to Jane, and then asking her to crumple it, and then asking her to make it new again. And Jane, of course, is like little Jane, little girl Jane says, "I I can't do that." And and the grandmother says, yes, exactly, you can't do that. And that is your virginity, you know. And it's it's played arch and straight at the same time so that it's not at all heavy-handed, but it's also not at all shit-eating. I mean, it's so sweet and it's so true. It just hooked me right away. I, I, it's a really unique thing uh, that they've done. I'm wondering, what did you guys think of the way the possibility of getting an abortion was handled on the show? I mean, it was broached in a way that you might not expect on a CW show that you presume is partly aimed at teenagers. But her mother does get her some kind of pill and says, I want you to have this choice if you want the choice. She and her mother have a discussion about her mother's own unintended pregnancy and her mother saying, of course, I'm glad I had you. And, you know, but Jane's sort of saying, if you had had this this option, what would you have done? And then there's a surprising conversation with the grandmother actually initially wished that her own daughter would get an abortion, but instead was, of course, happy that she had Jane. So I'm just wondering how you all felt about that. I felt like this passed the the knocked up test, the test that knocked up sort of failed about the question of abortion, which is, you know, knocked up was part of... After the movie came out, there was sort of some hubbub, like, did they not even address abortion? Would Katherine Heigl's character have... I was part of that hubbub. Right. I didn't like the way that movie handled that. Right. The whole schmorshin thing. I thought it was really right. mealy-mouthed. And so I felt like this show, you know, we know she sort of has to stay pregnant for, at least for now. I'm not actually sure she has to have the baby, but for the beginning of the show to sort of get its wheels turning, she has to stay pregnant. So, And it is credible in her circumstances. It's set up as a credible choice right. that she and makes. I th- and I thought that they, they didn't even just pay lip service to the idea that she maybe would have an abortion. They sort of, they treated it in a sort of, I thought, round and full way, especially considering that there is a hyper-Catholic character on the show who you would think would not even be able to engage, would not want to engage with this in any way. And she does, the grandmother, and she does engage with it. Um, I I was sort of impressed. I thought it was another example of how the show is actually um, so sort of smart and nuanced, even though it doesn't have to be. It has a real moral center. I mean, if you describe the plot of the first episode, it's a girl gets unintentionally pregnant and weighs whether or not to have an abortion. Like that is, there's a lot of other plot filigree having to do with handsome men from the past and other handsome men from the past all (laughs) reemerging and some dancing and sparkles. But 
it's like, should this girl get an abortion is, you know, if you did the like little capsule summary that appears in the right. in the newspaper listings, like that's the plot of the episode in a real way. And it's handled with real emotional depth and tears and a weighing of choices, which is you, you rarely see. I mean, I haven't watched enough of the teen soaps to know if like there were abortion plots on Gossip Girl. Like I think they've gotten better about some it. of these shows handle it better than I think we've we've moved along as a society since the Shmushmortion moment. But again, those shows have, from what I've seen of them, this sort of like shallow knowingness, I think, is a really good word, where it doesn't necessarily feel like real humans are weighing the real consequences of real things. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Willa, uh, we all agree this is something utterly distinctive. We uh, enthusiastically send our listeners in the direction of Jane the Virgin. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia. What do we got? We are very excited that our podcast this week is also sponsored by the company whose primary tenet is that glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. This is a very reasonable principle. As someone who has spent iPhone's worth of money on glasses over the years, I'm very excited about Warby Parker. I think, as many of our listeners probably know, this is the at-home glasses company. They offer frames that range from $95 or $145 for titanium frames. You can order a bunch. They come to you. You try them on at home and keep them. And Steve, I believe you are a Warby Parker fella, right? You've got some specs? You know, I apparently, I think I was a Warby Parker fella from birth. It was really... <laughs> the. The company had to be invented in order in order to complement my persona. Yeah, like I'm a I'm a classic Brooklyn looking, you know, geek like you know uh, myopic uh, geek who spent too much time growing up reading books and deteriorated, you know, my God given eyesight as a result, and have tried to transform that into a whole kind of uh, hipster shtick. Um, and, but I'd like to do it on the cheap, but I don't quite have the courage to go and buy like drugstore eyeglasses and put <laughs> s- script frames in them, but I don't really have the coin to go and buy, you know, seven, $800. Now they're probably $1,200 frames. And so just, I am that, I am a Warby Parker bullseye, walking bullseye, and they, they fucking nailed it. I love Warby Parker. Julia, I see the world through my love of Warby Parker. <laughs> Literally. Um, <laughs> Literally. I think that your Warby Parkers are crucial in taking your aesthetic from schlumpy wasp to hipster wasp, Steve. Is that fair? <laughs> I think that that's all too fucking fair, Julia Turner. <laughs> that's how fucking fair it is. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. All right. Well, so if you want to be cool like Steve, go to warby.com slash cultural. That's cultural to get your five free home try-on frames. Then you can choose the one you want and order. And by visiting that URL, you will get free three-day shipping on your final frame choice. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free. Again, that's warbyparker.com slash cultural. Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Adrian Chen is a contributing editor at The New Inquiry and a contributor for Slate magazine. His new piece for Wired magazine is a lurid tour de force about the legions of offshore labor it takes to keep the average social media feed from being overwhelmed by the very darkest of images. It has a great title. It's called The Laborers Who Keep Dick Pics and Beheadings Out of Your Facebook Feed. Let me quote a little bit uh, from it, uh, Adrian, before we dig in. As social media connects more people more intimately than ever before, companies have been confronted with the grandma problem. Now that grandparents routinely use services like Facebook to connect with their kids and grandkids, they're potentially exposed to the Internet's panoply of jerks, racists, creeps, criminals, and bullies. 
They won't continue to long on if they find their family photos sandwiched between a gruesome Russian highway accident and a hardcore porn video. So companies like Facebook and Twitter rely on an army of workers employed to soak up the worst of humanity in order to protect the rest of us. Adrian, first of all, thanks uh, for coming on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a great piece. And when you say the worst of humanity, you, uh, you really mean it, don't you? Yeah, uh, it's really kind of, you know, everything you can and can't imagine um, in terms of depravity. There's a quote in there from a woman who said that she gets affected by bestiality with children. And, you know, I guess that's a fairly regular enough thing that, that that's something that has become a, an issue in her mind. No, that's that was an amazing quote in the piece because it makes you realize how much other stuff they must regularly see for that to be the thing that she regularly sees that is the problem thing. Mm-hmm. It's frightening. It feels like you um, end up in this dark underworld, the whole point of which is to make it so that we users of social media don't have to confront the dark underbelly of humanity. And you talk really interestingly about the psychic toll it takes for these workers to scrub that stuff out and look at it all day long. It's, you know, it's kind of like PTSD for some of them. They're, there's, they're just seeing these horrible images all day. And it's kind of like opening them up to these realms that most people can't even imagine and just becoming routine for them. And so I think a lot of them kind of take on this darker view of humanity and and kind of, you know, just realize that there's all this bad stuff and and seeing evidence of it really affects them. Let's talk specifically about who these workers are and where you went to go meet with them. Who, this is, as you say, it's legions and legions of people are employed by the major social media companies in order to keep the internet relatively ungruesome for the rest of us. Where where are these people? Where are they employed? And what kind of work hours uh, and what kind of labor do they do? Yeah, I found that uh, the Philippines is a hotbed of this work. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, there's already a burgeoning outsourcing industry in the Philippines with a lot of call centers and customer service. And that has become kind of easily transformed into this um, repetitive, you know, well, I went to one office um, of an outsourcing firm called Taskus, which uh, is in charge of the content moderation for Whisper, which is an, an anonymous messaging app. And it was kind of this rundown building. It used to be an elementary school, and it was in this suburb kind of of, of Manila. And inside, it was just a bunch of people working at long tables. Uh, it kind of had a normal office vibe, um, although everybody was wearing matching, they were wearing matching shirts. And people were just kind of clicking at photos and, and um, making sure that none of the photos on the service are violating their terms of service. What are the legal ramifications when they come across a picture that seems like it points to a child pornography ring or, or something else illegal? Are these workers required to register it and send it somewhere, report it? Yeah, a lot of them are plugged into the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children, and um, they will send reports there. But as far as any kind of like drugs or violence, um, they usually just delete that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that was really striking to me about this piece, Adrian, was just this sense that like my sense of humankind is that most people don't want to put disgusting, pornographic, depraved, violent, and otherwise psychically ugly things out into the world. But in fact, many, many, many people do. That is exactly what they want to do. That's what they want to 
do on the internet. And so that there is a sacrifice that needs to be made in order for me to have a fairly rosy view of humankind. And the sacrifice is being borne by these low-wage workers, often in the Philippines. Also, you talk about a sort of set of like entry-level post-college types in the U.S. sometimes do this work, too, because it does require a fairly close alignment with cultural standards. Um, and that's part of why the Philippines is where some of this work is because um, of its longtime association with the United States. And, you know, you you there's a limit to how outsourced it can get. But it's it's a large group of people. I mean, the number you cite in the piece is 100,000 workers worldwide who are absorbing this, like, disgusting flotsam of the collective human psyche, you know, um, like those, what are those, like, coal buffers that absorb toxins or something and, like, let the rest of us um, enjoy the web. And it's just, it's, it, it, it changes the way you think about the, the web you do experience, I think, to understand all these people who are soaking up this yuckiness. Yeah, I think it, it gave me a sense that, like, the content that is on social media is really a product. And, you know, the, the people who are kind of cleaning it are maybe processing this product. And so... I think that, you know, it's interesting to think of, like, just the entire content on Facebook as this kind of commodity that needs to be processed and cleaned by a bunch of people um, instead of just this kind of, you know, communication that's going on. When you hear a lot about the brilliance of the algorithm and how the algorithm is only going to show you what you're interested in. So, I, you know, to the degree that I thought about this before reading your piece, which is barely at all, I sort of assumed that there was some kind of smart algorithm that just, like, you know, attached little lead weights to all the gross stuff and sank it into a an abyss of unviewability somewhere in the in the deep bowels of the Facebook server farms. And in fact, human labor is required to identify what is gross and ding it, seemingly. Yeah, there's there's no I was pretty shocked by how little automation actually goes into it. Um, from what I could tell there was only one there was only like one instance where I could see that it was completely automated and there's this thing called photo DNA where they have created like a database of all of these known child exploitation images. And so they can run it through there. And if any of those are posted, they can automatically get flagged. But everything else is pretty much, you know, either people flagging it, you know, on the user end or somebody has to just go through and, and manually check it. And the companies that you talk about specifically are, are YouTube in the U.S. and then this Whisper company that's outsourcing its labor to the Philippines. But would it be safe to say that all the big media companies we can think of, social media companies, are doing this? That Facebook has a team, that Google has a team, Twitter, all of these places have content moderation uh, outsourcing or insourcing? Yeah, any any company with content has content moderators, and it depends on you know how they do it, but... Um, I think a similar setup exists anywhere, and that's including like date, uh, dating sites and cloud storage. I, that was one of the most in- interesting things was one of the people I interviewed had worked for Microsoft through a contracting firm doing um, their cloud storage service. And from what I understood, they were actually looking at photos that you posted that weren't public um, to see if they were violating their guidelines. And I thought that was kind of interesting, considering that people use it as their kind of private storage. It's getting into Edward Snowden territory. It's going through your iPhoto and deciding what's appropriate and what's not. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. I I never could confirm that with Microsoft, but he, he said that private photos they were looking because people would upload a bunch of porn and then share it, you know, with people. And, and kind of use their service as this pornography distribution ring, and so they would go through private people's stuff. Wow. 
Adrian, was there a specific person or company's story that inspired you to to report on this and to start digging into this unseen underbelly of the internet? Yeah, I started looking into this when I was working at Gawker in I think 2011 when somebody tipped us off that somebody who worked for them had used had done this for Facebook and he was this Moroccan guy and was working through an online freelance marketplace um screening photos for Facebook for $2 an hour and Facebook at that time had outsourced with this kind of virtual freelancing firm and so they had people from like Guatemala, India, Mexico, Morocco all working from their homes looking at this stuff and I just interviewed him and and you know he was just talking about how horrible it was to look at this all day and how it just felt like you know the sewer of humanity was kind of dumping on you and so that was kind of interesting um to think about and to think about like if more people were doing that what would that mean it's interesting, too, in light of the recent controversy that flared up at Gawker Media, right, where Jezebel publicly posted calling on Nick Denton and the head of Gawker to allow for more serious comment moderation tools because part of the jobs of writers and editors and other folks at Jezebel was to deal with everything that is posted in the comments there, much of which is, you know, misogynist, disgusting porny and otherwise unappealing and talking about the psychic toll of looking at this stuff all day, which, again, is sort of hard to get your head around if that's not what you do all day. But it was, you know, it was another moment where it surfaced that, like, dealing with the dregs of human impulses on the web takes this toll and is this thing that various people do to spare the rest of the world from it. Yeah. And and I think when I started, I wasn't really that convinced that it was like a huge deal the psychic part just because it seemed like they were just images and i don't know i've seen a lot of horrible images in in my reporting on this stuff but it's the combination of seeing all this stuff and then also working this job that's very you know menial and kind of stressful you're always keeping up with the queue and so i really think it's that combination of kind of like being forced to look at this and then also kind of having to work like a machine that is really dehumanizing to people. Well, also imagine that you were this, to use Julia's metaphor, you were this, you know, filter on the top of a smokestack, keeping the air breathable for the rest of us, you know, and it's accumulating, you're the filter, it's accumulating in you in some sense. And then you walk out into the daylight and down the street and you realize some appreciable percentage of the people that you're passing on the street have these dark impulses and desires and have found this semi-public forum in which to express them. How would you ever return to thinking about humanity uh, innocently? I mean, I I don't know that you would. (laughs) A a showstopper. (laughs) It was a Metcalf showstopper. Well, a lot of them would, would, you know, take a break and, like, look at nice pictures, like pictures of animals or flowers or something to kind of, like, cleanse their palate. It does raise the question, though, like, who are these assholes who post this stuff? And also, like, is it sort of good for humanity that somebody absorbs this cost? Like, is the case to be made just that these people should be better compensated and that there should be, like, workers' comp for their ongoing therapy bills? But, like, isn't it better for humankind that not everybody, like, walks around with a carbon scrim thinking everybody is a disgusting pervert? Or should we just all be confronted with the the true awful nature of humankind? (laughs) Well... I don't know. I think there's some validity for the idea that we want the Internet to be a place where anybody can use it without, you know, feeling scared or threatened or 
being driven off by something horrible. But I also think that the way that it's being dealt with is just, it really is just not in keeping with the idea of the internet as being some kind of, you know, egalitarian or like new place that is supposed to function differently than than how things have because this is exactly how we always have dealt with bad things and and unsavory labor is just to dump it on really kind of poorly paid workers and you know I was talking to this researcher Sarah Roberts who's one of the only people who has studied this and she was talking about kind of the early days of message boards when this was all done by kind of volunteers and it was a community effort and I think on some level, if there was a more meaningful way to try to confront this on, you know, like a a community level or a a problem of organization or philosophy instead of just making it into this kind of factory clean as as fast as possible process, it might be better for everybody. Mm. All right. Well, it's an amazing piece of journalism. People should definitely seek it out. It's the laborers who keep dick pics and beheadings out of your Facebook feed. It's by Adrian Chen. It's in Wired Magazine. Check it out. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Uh, Dana, what do you have? This week, I'm going to endorse a podcast. It's a Slate podcast, but I'm not endorsing it out of just Slate loyalty. I'm endorsing it because I'm super excited. It's the new Supreme Court podcast from Dahlia Lithwick. It's called Amicus, and there have been three editions of it so far, I believe. And, uh, well, Dahlia, if you know her writing, is, of course, a dazzling writer on legal and judicial issues. But she is also an incredibly delightful personality. She's always just the best when she's on the radio or doing a TV spot. You never want to miss a Dahlia Lithwick weigh-in on anything to do with the Supreme Court. And now she's doing weekly weigh-ins on whatever she wants. And so, for example, the last episode, she got Jeffrey Tubin, who's the New Yorker's legal judicial reporter, on to talk about his big get of his recent interview with, with Obama about uh, judicial issues. She also had the lawyer who argued Windsor versus the United States, the big 2013 case that overturned the Defense of Marriage Act. So she gets real legal eminences on her show, and they have sparkling and fascinating conversations. So Amicus, the new Supreme Court podcast from Slate, is my I'm endorsement. also a big Amicus of Amicus. Can I submit an Amicus brief to that endorsement on behalf of Amicus. It's a really great podcast. Yeah. If you're not a fan of Dahlia Lithwick, you're not a part of the human community as far as I'm concerned. Uh, (laughs) Your bona fides uh, definitely need to be double checked. But um, uh, Julia, what do you have? Um, Well, can I can I like interrupt the endorsement process to do like a meta podcast business endorsement? I think we there's no way to say no to that question because it was so confusing and agrammatical. <laughs> you backed us into a corner, Julia. Dana just looks like confused and paralyzed and slightly fearful, which is always what I want to elicit in my interlocutors. Um, I would like to endorse our producer, Ann Hepperman, who is amazing and whose 40th birthday it is today. Am I allowed to say the date or can I, should I just say it's a significant birthday, Ann? So Hot Stuff Hepperman is turning 40, and so she's going to come into the studio, and we're going to serenade her. This is just all part of my long con to get Steve to sing every week now that we've broken the seal. Yeah, because that teaser was really not going to do it, Steve. You're going to have to complete a song on air pretty soon. All right, I'll adjust my mic. <laughs> yeah. You, wait, <laughs> can somebody adjust my mic? <laughs> you got to adjust your own mic in here, Hepperman. <laughs> okay. All right, ready, guys? 
One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. I don't hear Steve. Steve, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 so lame. Happy birthday, dear Anne. Happy birthday to you. I guess Steve doesn't love you. It's okay. Can you give us like a, like a rotund uh, and many more Can at we? least from Ghent? What is your problem? <laughs> I would actually like it's, a little vibrato. This is about Steve. her turning forty. It's not about my weird Presbyterian, you know, hangups. Oh, this is great. Public. Thanks, um, because my mom, uh, who usually calls and sings to me every year, just sent me a tweet this morning. That you think that's all you're getting? The tweet. <laughs> Possibly. Who knows? <laughs> She's discovered technology and it's changed her. Parenthood so. in 140 characters. You so gotta teach her how to send an audio file. If anyone can, it would be you. Yeah, exactly. All right. Cool. Um, I just had two things to say, Anne. One is that, as far as I'm concerned, 40s are the best decade yet, so you should be completely psyched about that decade beginning. And also, just for listeners, if any of you have noticed vast improvements in our show over the past year or so, it's all because of Anne. She has made the show so much better and more fun to do, in my opinion. Um, Yes, it's awesome working with you, Anne. And uh, thank you so much for producing us every week. Great. Steve, any um, advice on being old? <laughs> <laughs> never uh, sing in public. <laughs> you never sing in public. Uh, no, it, uh, life gets better and better. What can I say? <laughs> okay, thanks. All right, on with the show. I'm tempted to just call that my endorsement because it was fun, but I will also endorse and maybe preview if I can entice my colleagues into it. A new song from the Taylor Swift album, which dropped today or yesterday or something um it's out it's gonna be huge she is like pop music's lone remaining behemoth or at least the lone one who's got an album out this year seemingly and i like the new song out of the woods which is a collaboration with jack antonoff who's one of the forces musical forces behind the band fun who had some big hits a couple years ago also is the boyfriend of lena dunham um, and the whole, like, intersection between Taylor Swift and Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift's new New York incarnation is just, like, psychically amusing. And the song is good. I really like the sound of fun. And I like Taylor Swift. And together they made a good song. Um, but maybe maybe we'll talk more about this album next week, Steve, if I can oh, lure God. you in. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. All right. So for my endorsement this week... Uh... Uh, apropos of the conversation about Snowden and the Snowden movie, I was uh, the movie uh, from the 1970s called The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola came to mind. It's a movie that is, I mean, it's beloved. It's 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Roger Ebert, Pauline Kael both, both thought it was maybe one of the best American movies ever made. But it's a small movie relative to the two Godfather movies in between which it's sandwiched in the Coppola oeuvre. And, uh, it's just a great, it's like, it's truly the great paranoid study of, of government eavesdropping. Uh, it's just such a good movie. And Gene Hackman is the star of it. He's tr- tremendously good in it. It is it really one of the best sort of auteur movies of the 1970s. Uh, I assume a lot of our listeners have seen the movie already. If you haven't, it is an absolute treat. It is a masterpiece in American American masterpiece. You should check it out. And very quickly, I went to a wedding a few months ago and have been meaning to endorse this forever. It turned out one of the people getting married is a part of a duo called the Lonesome Sisters. They're a really, really, really good old-timey music bluegrass uh, duo with beautiful harmonies. Uh, check them out on Spotify. Their, their music is so sumptuously gorgeous. It's not just that I know one of them personally now a little bit. Uh, I, I've just been enchanted by their music ever since I uh, first heard it. So check it out. All right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. And uh, thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman, who just flew by her sell-by date, and our intern is Josephine Livingston, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Could fit more perfectly than to have a world party on the day.